Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to the book of Proverbs. In most of the books of the Bible that we've covered thus far, I've attempted to provide a little bit of introduction in the first chapter episode of the series. But in this case, given the complexity of the book of Proverbs and the uniqueness of this particular genre, I thought it might be helpful to provide a full episode-length introduction. We'll get into the actual content of chapter one in the next episode. The book of Proverbs is one of the wisdom writings of the Old Testament. The book presents itself as a compilation by King Solomon, and many of the Proverbs appear to have been composed by Solomon himself. We know, of course, that Solomon was famously wise. 1 Kings 4, 29-34 says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East. And all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, closed quote. There are a couple of features in that testimony that warrant further reflection. First of all, notice that wisdom, according to the biblical usage, overlaps heavily with the concepts of understanding and knowledge. In contemporary English use, we sometimes imply too great a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. At times, we even disparage knowledge. We call it head knowledge or book knowledge. And we say it's one thing to know things, but another thing entirely to understand them. That is the essence of wisdom. But that doesn't appear to be the perspective of the Bible. The Bible seems to take a both-and approach. In order to be wise... You have to know some things, and you have to reflect upon those things so as to gain understanding. In 1 Kings 4, the Bible says that God gave Solomon wisdom, and that wisdom included knowledge of animals, birds, plants, and agriculture. Bruce Walke says helpfully here, God used the sage's keen observations of creation and humanity and his cogent reflections upon them, informed by faith in Israel's covenant-keeping God, to produce the wisdom literature, closed quote. So wisdom is the product of a variety of things. It is first and foremost a gift. First Kings 4 says that God gave Solomon wisdom. He gave Solomon the ability to see, to study, to learn, to reflect, and to understand. But then Solomon had to do those things. As Walkie says, the, the sage, the wise man, had to observe and reflect, informed by faith, so as to produce this wisdom literature. So there's a lot going on here, and there are a number of constituent elements behind what we know as wisdom literature. 
We should also notice in 1 Kings 4 that the wisdom of Solomon is not offered as a contrast to the wisdom of other cultures, but rather as an improvement or advancement. The Bible acknowledges that there is wisdom to be found in other cultures and other nations outside of the special revelation of God. And in fact, inside this compilation, there seems to be gatherings and gleanings from the wisdom literature of other nations. Alan P. Ross says here, Inspiration does not exclude the divine use of existing material, but in Scripture, it takes on a new force, a higher meaning, and becomes authoritative, closed quote. All right, so what we have here is a compilation or anthology originally put together by Solomon, subsequently expanded in later years by others. See Proverbs 25, 1 for some evidence of that. Now, this includes many proverbial sayings composed by Solomon, as well as selections and gleanings from other sources. In terms of the overall structure of this compilation, the book of Proverbs is generally understood to be comprised of seven distinct sections or collections. The first section, running from chapter 1 through chapter 9, contains a preamble followed by 12 poems about wisdom, 10 from a father to his son, and then two in the mouth of woman wisdom. And these are given to young people in general. And this suggests that the entire book was originally presented as a gift from Solomon to his royal son on some particular occasion. To these introductory poems is then added a variety of appendices or secondary collections. Some of them, as I mentioned, presenting proverbs attributed to Solomon and others presenting wisdom sayings attributed to others. So you can visualize this as a fairly thick gift book that has several distinct sections sewn or stitched together. The total package is intended to resource the son for wise living and governing as a future leader. It was cherished and eventually included in the Old Testament canon because it served as a sort of catechism for young people in wise and faithful living. Now, I should let you know that the book of Proverbs isn't going to feel very proverbial until we get to chapter 10. As I mentioned, the first section contains a preamble followed by 12 poems about wisdom, fatherly talks, really, and then also lectures put in the mouth of woman wisdom. And then only after that content do you get the first section of actual Proverbs. So Proverbs 10, verse 1, for example, says, The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Close quote. All right, well, that's a proverb, or at least what we tend to think of as a proverb. A typical proverb in English is characterized by terseness, brevity, and alliteration. So, a stitch in time saves nine. Many of us probably heard that proverb from our grandmothers and probably assumed that it was originally from the Bible, but it's not, although there are many biblical proverbs that sound very much like it. A classic Hebrew proverb is generally terse, poetic, and pragmatic. This is what makes Proverbs so memorable, and it's also what makes them so difficult to translate. Terseness can only be achieved when you have absolute mastery of the language. In fact, one of the things you notice when you study the book of Proverbs in English is how very often there are far more words in the English translation of a particular verse than there were in the original Hebrew. It's fairly common for eight Hebrew words to become 13 or 14 or 16 or 17 English words. So they don't come off anywhere near as terse as they would have originally sounded. 
And of course, certain aspects of the poetry are going to be obliterated by translation. Alliteration, for example, does not generally transfer over from one language to another. Now, thankfully, a fair bit of Hebrew poetry is built around parallelism, and that generally does transfer over in translation. So in Proverbs 15.32, for example, it says, Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. This little poem is built around two particular features, assonance and parallelism. Assonance has to do with the repetition of certain vowel sounds. So, for example, if I say, clap your hands, stamp your feet, I am repeating the ah vowel sound, which provides some poetic structure to the saying. And as you can well imagine, if I attempted to translate that sentence into French or German, the resulting vowel sounds would almost certainly not preserve that pattern and tempo. So the assonance in Proverbs 15.32 does not transfer over, but the parallelism does. Even in English, you can see two evenly matched sides of this little poem. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. That's an example of contrasting parallelism. There are many different types of parallelism. There's synonymous parallelism, synthetic parallelism, formal parallelism. We'll encounter all of those in Proverbs, and as we do, I'll do my best to point those out each time we meet them. Now, in terms of the theology presented or assumed in the book of Proverbs, some readers do find that to be somewhat troubling. The book of Proverbs may seem unrealistic. It might even be accused of overpromising. Some even say that it has contributed to the rise of the prosperity gospel. But I'm not sure those accusations represent a fair and even-handed reading of the book. For one thing, Proverbs are not intended to be read as promises. Rather, they intend to communicate general principles. And they do. As Walke points out, the sober, not the drunkard, the cool-tempered, not the hothead, and the diligent, not the sluggard, usually experience health and wealth, closed quote. All right, well, key word there, obviously, is usually. But the book of Proverbs itself acknowledges that sometimes in a fallen world, what should happen and what generally does happen doesn't always happen. So Proverbs 13.23, for example, says, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Thus, reading Proverbs comprehensively, we would say that the diligent should prosper and generally will prosper, but sometimes, because of injustice, will not. And so Proverbs accounts for that and gives guidance that accords with that. Proverbs 16, verse 8 says, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice, close quote. So even in the book of Proverbs itself, we have general principles and a recognition that sometimes because of sin, those general principles are going to be resisted and our experiences may not align exactly with what we've been led to expect. That reality is further explored in the books of Ecclesiastes and Job. These three wisdom books are meant to be read together. Proverbs majors in the general principles. It tells you what is right, what is wise, what is prudent, and what generally leads to happiness, prosperity, and peace. It is complemented by the book of Job, 
which explores the reality of dark providence. Because God is working out purposes of redemption in a broken and fallen world, sometimes you're going to do everything right, but you're still going to fall into a pit. You're still going to suffer. You're still going to get sick. The purposes for that may not be clear to you in this life, but rest assured, God is good. He can be trusted, and there will be perfect justice, understanding, and recompense in the end. The message of Proverbs is further complemented by the book of Ecclesiastes, which explores the frustrations associated with living short lives in a broken and dysfunctional world. In the short term, in a system in process, sometimes the relationship between cause and effect is distorted. Ecclesiastes 8.14 says, There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth, the righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve, closed quote. Experience teaches us, and Ecclesiastes reminds us, that in a fallen world, we don't always reap what we sow for good or ill. We cannot safely assume that right actions will invariably result in good outcomes. So the wise man of Ecclesiastes counsels us to fear the Lord, keep his commandments, and to enjoy whatever legitimate pleasures life affords. In short, the book of Proverbs tells us how things should go and how they often will go. But Job and Ecclesiastes help us understand the exceptions, the disappointments, and the disconnections that regularly occur under the sun in the present dispensation. We are living between creation and recreation. And so wisdom needs to account for the code, the virus, the cure, and the consummation. Now, hearing all of that, you might be wondering, in what sense, then, are Proverbs true? I think we can argue that they are true in three ways. They are true, first of all, in a general sense, as I cited above. It is the sober, not the drunkard, the cool-tempered, not the hothead, and the diligent, not the sluggard, that usually experiences health and wealth. Even though the world has fallen, it is still ordered. There are still moral principles, natural laws, and divinely imposed limitations that we must recognize and understand in order to live well and wisely as contingent creatures. David Haynes and Andrew Fulford remind us that the very fact of divine creation seems to point towards what has been traditionally called natural law. The notion that there is, because of the divine intellect, a natural order within the created world by which each and every created being's goodness can be objectively judged, both on the level of being, ontological goodness, and, for human beings specifically, on the level of human action, in terms of moral goodness in brackets there, closed quote. So, because this world was created by God, it has order goodness, beauty, and wisdom hardwired in. That's what Haynes and Fulford are saying there. And, and so Proverbs tells us what is, even if what is is currently distorted, resisted, and occasionally obscured. That fundamental order, however, is never obliterated, and the force and fact of that fundamental order is constantly reasserting itself. The wise know that, and they live accordingly. So, 
These proverbs are true in a general sense. And then they're also true in a situational sense. By that, I mean that an aspect of wisdom is knowing when to apply what general principle. For example, Proverbs 26, 4 to 5 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Closed quote. All right. <laughs> so which is it? Should we answer a fool according to his own folly or should we not? And the answer is, it depends on the situation. It depends on what kind of fool you are talking to. Sometimes engaging with a fool is worth the effort because the fool might be operating without all the facts. And knowing the facts, he or she might actually become wise. But often, engaging with a fool is a complete waste of time. The facts don't matter to most fools. They make decisions on predetermined tribal loyalties or distorted perceptions of reality or simple, plain, old-fashioned self-interest. In such cases, default to option A, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So it really does depend. And wisdom is like that. And Proverbs are like that, even in English. We say in English, for example, fate favors the bold. But we also say, look before you leap. So which is it? And the answer, of course, is it depends on the situation. Wisdom involves knowing when to apply which general principle. So Proverbs are true in a general sense. They are true in a situational sense. And then thirdly, Proverbs are true in an ultimate sense. A great deal of the wisdom in the Bible comes down to this. Seeing the whole board and playing the long game. There may be temporary distortions in the created order. There may be strange interventions and seasons of dark providence. But in the end, there will be justice. The wise will experience life, and the wicked will experience death. Bruce Walke says here, Life, in the majority of Proverbs texts, refers to abundant life in fellowship with God, a living relationship that is never envisioned as ending in clinical death, in contrast to the wicked's eternal death. He goes on to say, the righteous rises in a blessed future that outlasts death. The book's concept of justice demands such a hope, Close quote. So we do reap what we sow, generally, though not always and not perfectly in this life. But certainly, finally, and ultimately in the end. And that's why, whatever the immediate outcome, it makes sense to trust in the Lord with all your heart and to lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Now, finally, we need to speak briefly about how we ought to read the book of Proverbs as New Testament followers of Jesus Christ. That we ought to read Proverbs as New Testament followers of Jesus Christ ought to be patently obvious. The UBS Greek New Testament identifies approximately 60 citations or allusions to the book of Proverbs in the pages of the New Testament. So it is very clear that the apostles were regularly reading and meditating upon the book of Proverbs. Just as they understood Jesus to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, so too it is clear that they understood Jesus to be the fulfillment of the wisdom tradition. The Apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, says that God made him, Jesus, to be wisdom itself, close quote. 
And so just as Jesus embodied and perfectly interpreted the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, so too he also embodied and perfectly manifested the wisdom of the Old Testament. Indeed, the Apostle Paul spoke to the Colossians about Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, closed quote. So there's a sense then that when we hear the book of Proverbs, we're hearing a pre-incarnate echo of the voice of Jesus Christ. What Jesus says in the flesh is not different or contrary to what is said in Proverbs. Rather, we should think of it as clearer and greater. Jesus himself said in Luke eleven thirty one, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here, closed quote. So as Christians, we should read the wisdom portions of the Old Testament the same way we read the legal and prophetic portions of the Old Testament. We read them as anticipating Christ and also as fulfilled, embodied, and perfected in Christ. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.